there's a tendency to define yourself a little bit too rigidly. Be thinking a little bit ahead of what's the next stage in your life and career and plant some of those seeds, then you'll be better equipped as you go through these different career transitions. The Startup Sensations podcast. First-hand accounts of the real stories behind the successes, challenges, and opportunities of starting and growing a startup company. From both sides of the pond, with Bulent Osman and Shelley Bays. And welcome back to another episode of the Startup Sensations podcast with me, Bulent Osman, and I'm still just outside London here in the UK. And me, Shelley Bays, on the northern California coast where it is raining. Oh, what a shame for you, Shelley. Uh, no, we love the rain. Nice to see you again. <laughs> Today is a really fascinating episode of the show because I'm really excited about the guest that we've got here. And it's a lady that you know very well. Uh, her name is Suzanne Lyons. And she's had an amazing career, hasn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Now, I, I've known Suzanne for many years. She and I worked together, in fact, early in our careers at uh, Charles Schwab. And then, you know, we went our separate ways. And she's done a number of things. She worked for a VC at one point. Uh, but I think the most exciting thing we're going to talk to her about is her tenure as head of the U.S. Olympic Committee. And uh, she just came off, I think about a year ago, that assignment and um, weathered all sorts of interesting and challenging times. So that's what I think is going to be really fun to talk to her about. I'm looking forward to it. And I'm delighted to welcome Suzanne Lyons, who now joins us all the way from California. Suzanne, welcome to the show. How are you? Thank you, Bulent. I'm very happy to be here. Hey, Suzanne. Hi, Shelley. Well, Suzanne, uh, thank you ever so much for joining us today. Um, we're really excited to, to have you on the show. And I'd like to start, really, by you giving us your, should we say, your reminiscences around your 12 years that you were heading up and playing a very senior role within the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Sure, of course. And people always say to me, you know, how did you get involved with the Olympics? Are, are you an athlete? And I always laugh because I'm probably the worst athlete that's ever been involved in the Olympics. But um, my first involvement was actually way back in 2004 when I worked at Visa, the credit card company, and we were a very large sponsor of the Olympics and the Paralympics. And I got to know it then I got to meet many of the wonderful athletes and began to go to games and uh, really got the bug, if you will, for uh, the wonderful athleticism of the games. And fast forward to after I retired in 2010, the Olympic Committee at that time was looking for um, some independent board members, and I was fortunate to be selected to join their board. And the first eight years of that tenure was fairly calm. We had uh, went to a number of games. We had exciting bid uh, and won the LA bid. LA is going to be the home of the Olympics in 2028. And uh, things were going quite swimmingly. Everyone was terribly proud to be part of the Olympics and the Paralympics. And then in 2018, we had a tremendous crisis, which was that we discovered that one of the doctors, the team doctors, a volunteer who had been working with gymnastics for 25 years, had been abusing some of the athletes some of the young athletes. And as it turns out, first we thought it was one or two or three, they began to come out of the woodwork. And it turned out that over 300 athletes had been abused by this doctor over 25 years, which of course 
created a tremendous, tremendous crisis um, in the organization. It resulted in the CEO leaving. And this is sort of where my very involved <laughs> uh, activities began because I'm, I'm what you would call the reluctant leader. I never dreamed of being the CEO or the chair of the Olympic and Paralympic Committee. It was not really on my bucket list of things to do, but I was asked to kind of step into that breach. So I became the interim CEO for a year during this crisis when we had a tremendous lawsuit. We were trying to deal with the aftermath for the athletes, for the uh, survivors of, of the abuse. And it required really what I would call not a startup, but a start over of an organization, an organization that was quite well established, had been running the same way for a very long time, primarily focused on wonderful performance at the games. The U.S. has generally been very successful at the games, and that was really where their focus was. And they were organized very functionally around high performance for the U.S. Team USA athletes. And it really required someone to come in and think quite differently about that both to dig out of the crisis and to rethink oversight. How did this happen? How did we not know anything about it? How had we never even heard of this doctor or any whisper that this was happening over the course of this time? So that's why I think it, in some ways that experience is relevant for startup leaders. Because as I say, it was a start over. You had a very proud organization who was delighted to be doing what they were doing and suddenly were told overnight, you are terrible people. You let little girls be abused. You aren't doing it right. You aren't keeping control over all of these 52 sports that you, in theory, have oversight for, and you need to do that a lot better. So that, that kind of gives you a little bit of the background. So I, I did bring in a new CEO. I thought I was done. I thought I was terming off the board, and I was then asked to become the chair. So for the next four years, um, I worked hand-in-hand -hand with our new CEO, Sarah Hirschland, and pretty much revamped almost everything. Uh, related to how we organize the games for both the Olympics and the Paralympics. So that's, a, in a nutshell, kind of the crisis management situation that took someone, not an athlete, not from the sports world, and yet at that moment in time, perhaps the right skill set to do what needed to be done. How did you start? I mean, what are the things that you did, if you can break some of that down for us, that really got this organization back on track, moving again? I'm just curious what those things were. It was really a situation where you come in and you say, okay, I have a whiteboard now. What do we do? Our CEO, who was very well liked, particularly by the staff, had suddenly disappeared practically overnight. And they were demoralized. They were, you know, kind of in shock. And I will tell you that they were not organized properly to deal with a whole new set of challenges. They knew how to create great athletes. They did not know how to run a hundred million or more lawsuit or how to make amends to these hundreds and hundreds of survivors of this abuse. So we kind of broke it into two pieces. There was sort of the external facing piece, which was the immediate aftermath of the crisis, the media, Congress, the world was all looking at us saying, you horrible people, what are you doing next? And on the external side, first you start by apologizing and you take accountability, which surprisingly seems pretty easy and what you should obviously do in any of these situations. And you'd be amazed how many times people forget to do that. You need to apologize. Doesn't matter if you knew about it or caused it. You are accountable for it. And you have to be empathetic to whoever was harmed by that situation. So every statement we made started with the athletes and their families and our tremendous sorrow as to what they had gone through and our promise that we were about to do some things to hope that that would never happen again in the future. 
So that apology, accountability, empathy, and then an action plan. Now on the internal side, so then you switch back to the people who have to execute it. Um, first is transparency. They were all reading articles in the paper. They needed to know what was going on. How, what happened? Who knew what? Where, when did they know it, et cetera? And then you have to demonstrate that you seem, first of all, calm. You may not feel calm, but they're looking to the leader to see if you're panicking. So a lot of it is putting on a very good face to say, we're going to get through this. There's going to be a plan. We will be on the other side of this. And we have the skills to make this all be right again. And then you have to remind people of the mission. We were a very mission-driven organization. This was all about people who loved and, and bled Team USA. They loved the athletes. They loved and were so proud of our team. So you have to remind them, this is why you were here. And I think it's also one reason why it was so disruptive and, and demoralizing to the organization, because they had such pride and suddenly they didn't. So you remind them to go back to the roots. What are we here for? We're here for the athletes. And maybe we need to think differently about how we organize to ensure that our athletes are safe. It's not just about putting people on the podium and winning medals. It's really about what we called kind of the, the whole athlete, their training, their development, their road to becoming hopefully an elite athlete, and also what happens after. What happens to an athlete after they've retired from their career and they haven't finished college or they haven't had a job and suddenly they've got to move on. So we needed to reorganize. We were very functionally organized around performance or around finance or HR, et cetera. And for the crisis, what we did was we created what I call the five pillars. One was oversight for all the sports because one of the reasons this happened was we kind of were very benignly letting all of the sports manage themselves. They all had their own boards and their own CEOs, and we viewed ourselves as people funding them and enabling them but we didn't view ourselves strictly as overseeing them and ensuring they were reaching uh, particular criteria as it relates to safe sport or the care and well-being of their athletes. So we created a whole pillar around N NGB oversight and really fundamentally changed what our role was, not just providers of funding and, you know, we'll see you at the games, to really become the people, making sure the people were doing the right thing. So it was kind of moving from hands off in a way, or arm's length, to actually being more integrally involved is what I'm hearing you say. Absolutely. And I would say that in the past, there was a fear that we, you know, we would create liability by being overly involved in the sports. And that bit us big time, because the giant liability came from not being adequately involved in the sports. So we created a whole new set of compliance guidelines and audits and things that all the individual sports needed to do to ensure that we kind of knew what was going on and who they were hiring and rules around who could be in a locker room or who could be in a massage session, doors needing to be open, more than one adult. So that was a big piece of it. But there were five pillars that we then organized around as opposed to just focusing functionally as they had in the past. Suzanne, knowing you for a long time and seeing you in a variety of different roles, you couldn't have just walked into that role without some experience in a prior situation or multiple experiences that kind of gave you the insight, the gut, the strengths to face that situation. And, you know, you say you're not an athlete, but I tell you, uh, keeping calm and, and persevering in that kind of situation is as much of an athletic performance <laughs> as going out and running a race. But what were some of the things 
that you pulled on from your background that really stood you in good stead for what you had to do? Sure. And, you know, it seems that, I hope this isn't my fault, but every organization I've been part of has gone through some sort of a crisis. I worked for Hercules Capital, which is a small venture debt firm. Not so small. It's one of the leading venture debt firms in California. And um, our CEO became involved in what was here in the U.S. called the Varsity Blues Scandal, parents who were paying for their kids to get into colleges. And it turns out that he was guilty of that, and he and his wife both went to prison. So there was quite an interesting crisis that happened there, change in CEO, board involvement there. Prior to that, I had worked with CNET on the board of CNET. CNET was a company that became part of a hostile takeover bid. We had to work our way out of the hostile takeover bid, and we were uh, subsequently bought by CBS. But there was a whole interesting set of new skills that we, the board, had to learn to work through a hostile takeover. And then if you go back earlier to my primary career, which was in financial services at Fidelity Investments and at Charles Schwab, we were in a very cyclical industry. We would either have enormous boom times with tremendous volume of clients coming in and new money coming in and having to staff up and train thousands of people, or we would go into overnight into a market crash and everything had to change. So I grew up in a world of oh, it's booming. Oh, it's crashing. Oh, it's booming. Oh, it's crashing. And having to really turn on a dime. I remember when I ran the call centers at Charles Schwab, one year I hired 2,500 people, opened two call centers, got them trained, got them on the phones. Next year, giant crash. We laid off 2,500 people, had to completely shut down one of the new centers that we had built. So you learn from that a nimbleness, an ability to say, okay, we did it this way yesterday. That's not the way we have to do it tomorrow. And you learn which of your team you can rely on. Who are those resilient thinking people who you could throw in a room very quickly and say, okay, the world just changed overnight. What is it that you think we should do? And I kind of had a little scratch list that I knew, you know, these were the people, if I needed to pull them in from all the different functions, these are the ones who overnight can rebuild a whole way of doing things. When I was at Charles Schwab, our founder, Chuck Schwab, has many interesting ideas. And he was very good friends with the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. Berkshire Hathaway decided they would do an IPO. And for the first time, they wanted retail consumers to be able to participate in the IPO, because usually in an IPO, it's all investment banks and corporate entities. And the big money that's sometimes made in an IPO never goes to the little guy. So Berkshire Hathaway decided, we're going to do that. We want Charles Schwab and one other brokerage firm to do that. So I got the call from Chuck Schwab saying, pick whoever you want. You have a month to build a system and figure out how you're going to do an IPO and allocate shares and do all the things that people do in an IPO. Uh, That's never been done before. Good luck. Let us know how it goes. So there was a perfect example of literally pulling about 15 really great people into a room saying, here's our charge. You're in charge of systems. You're in charge of communications. You're in charge of the legal side. You know, And within a big company where I work, the beauty of that is you have the funding. That's what I call entrepreneurship. So here's a project. I didn't have to go ask VCs for money. You know, Basically, the, the head of the company said, go do it. I don't care what it costs. Figure it out. Um, so that part, that very difficult part that a startup CEO has to really focus on tremendously is sort of done for you when you're in a big company. But the rest of it is very similar in that you are breaking new ground. You don't necessarily have any idea how it should be done. 
There's not even a roadmap that anyone had ever done it before. And you're just kind of cobbling together from excellent past experience, people who are creative and can think of solutions to it. And sure enough, within a month, we had a system. We allocated shares. We participated in the IPO. No one went to jail. It didn't break. So success. <laughs> you know, my recollection of Schwab, certainly in the earlier days, was that Schwab itself was a startup and Schwab was scaling rapidly. And so here you are doing something like a startup within a startup, which has its own set of challenges because a startup that stand alone can succeed or fail, but you don't have this outer shell of the uh, rest of the organization kind of telling you what to do, giving you guidance. So that as well had to be a real challenge, you know, kind of navigating both being the corporate person and being the leader of this little startup effort. Yeah. And that's where I think one of the key skills that probably all leaders of startups have is you have to be a great integrator. You have to be able to kind of work among people with very different skill sets and often different styles. You know, the tech people have their own style versus the marketing or the salespeople. And you have to be able to listen to them, speak their language, and have them be able to communicate with one another because sometimes they're communicating on a somewhat different plane. And so whether it's a 15-person startup or, in this case, a project within a you know tens of thousands of person company, um, that skill set of being able to integrate the information and help people communicate as a team and to build a team very quickly, that's the other thing. Most of these people were not in the same department, so they had to overnight become in, the, in a way, their own little startup team. So that that team building capability, that leadership to immediately set a vision. Here's our goal. Here's our moonshot. We're all going to be part of this. It's going to be very exciting. You're all going to have a critical role in making it successful or not. So, you know, we all have accountability to the project. And that type of leadership where you have to come in pretty quickly and establish the trust and the willingness to follow is is pretty key, I think, in all of these businesses. And talking about that, Suzanne, could I just take you back to a particular day, the 13th of September 2017, was the day that the IOC announced that you had led the winning bid for the Olympic Games for 2028. So that's another four years from now in Los Angeles. What was that day like for you? And it was a culmination of a huge amount of effort for, from you and your team. Can you share with us some of the challenges and some of the successes that you had in putting that bid together. Sure. And I'll tell you a challenge people may not remember, but originally the USOPC had selected Boston as the U.S. candidate for the 28 games. And there was a whole Washington, D.C., Boston, New York, I forget all of them, there were five or six cities had competed to become the U.S. bid. And L.A. wasn't the chosen one. Uh, it was kind of a split boat among the board, but Boston won the bid. And then subsequently, there was a lot of pressure within Boston from some very well-organized groups who didn't want the games in Boston, didn't think it was going to benefit the taxpayers, et cetera. And so they eventually reneged and said, yep, we're out. Sorry. We thought we wanted it. We really don't. And so we had to, hat in hand, kind of call our colleagues in Los Angeles and say, well, you know, maybe we really would like you to be the bid after all. And to their credit, they had seen what was transpiring and they had behind the scenes pretty quickly put their plan back together. And so we sallied forth with Los Angeles as the U.S. bid. 
And with tremendous leadership, I have to say, um, there's a bid committee in that city that really is driving the bid. Um, we kind of select which city it will be. Um, but then we had Casey Wasserman in Los Angeles as the chair and Gene Sykes, who, by the way, is my successor as chair of the USOPC. He was the CEO of the LA bid. And so they did a tremendous job going to the IOC and convincing them that LA is you know, such a unique city. It has so many different and diverse cultures, so many people from so many parts of the world, many languages. Um, we already had all the venues. Basically, you didn't have to build a single thing. Usually the reason Olympics don't make money is because you have to build all these swimming uh, stadiums and big stadiums. They have it all in LA. We could pick, we keep choosing new ones that are even better than the ones we originally picked. So it not only you know was very, very logical because from an environmental point of view, you're not building and wasting new things, and it will probably make money. How did you get started? I mean, did you know right away, this is what I want to do moving into financial services or this or that? Tell us a little bit about you know, what drove you as a very young person as you entered the workforce. Well, it could probably not be more random than it was. First of all, my very first job, um, all of my friends in the neighborhood who were boys all had paper routes. So they were all buying new bicycles and things because they had paper routes. And I thought, this would be a great idea. I'll go down and see if I can get a paper route. And I was told, no, we don't hire girls. We only have boys who do paper <laughs> routes. And I said, huh. Now, I was probably about 15 or 16 at the time. I said, well, you know, I know Jerry Seidel, who's the head of the American Civil Liberties Union, and he would probably be very interested to hear this. Now, I did not know Jerry Seidel. I just knew his name. <laughs> but the paper route guy on the back of the truck said, well, maybe we could make you a substitute. Every time one of the boys goes on vacation, you could be the substitute. So you're not officially a paper girl. But uh, anyway, that was my first kind of entrepreneurial venture. By the way, I got bigger tips. The, the dads always <laughs> thought it was very novel, and I got twice the tips that the boys did. But that was my first job. And I had jobs running a craft store. And I, you know, when I first came into financial services, I barely knew what a mutual fund was. I was a temp. I had an MBA. I couldn't get a job. It was a recession, 1982. Couldn't get a job anywhere. So I just went out to be a temp. And first they sent me to Harvard Medical School. And I said, I'm not a doctor, no career path here, send me somewhere else. So they sent me to this company, Fidelity Investments, where within a week or two, they decided maybe I was worth keeping and they hired me. And that started my financial services career. And eventually I did make my way into marketing where I had an MBA in, in marketing. And over the course of 10 years had become senior vice president of their brokerage division. And then I was recruited by Charles Schwab, where I met Shelley and my husband, you know, kind of continued on in this financial services career. And, you know, probably the biggest career setback that I had, and I hadn't had a lot till, the, till that time, and that's a dangerous thing for a leader. You should have failures because if you don't learn how to deal with failure, you really aren't going to be able to deal with success. So um, in one of the giant crashes in the early uh, 2000s when the tech industry blew up and Schwab had to lay off all those people, we laid off almost half our staff. We went from 30,000 to 15,000 employees. And my job was one of the ones that got cut, which was a great surprise to me. Never saw that coming. You know, I was one of the biggest flag waving, called ourselves Schwabies, that there was. And it was a tremendous, tremendous shock to me to suddenly find myself out of a job. And there's a tendency to, first of all, blame yourself and say, maybe I wasn't good enough or I did something wrong. And I, 
one of the things I've learned over time is sometimes business is just business and restructures happen and it's not personal. But it's very hard not to take it personally when it's happening to you. So the big learning I had from that, and I took a year off after that because it really was quite a psychological shock to my system, my first kind of failure, if you will. And what I really learned is, first of all, you're not your job. You can be thoroughly involved in your job. You can love your job. You can love your coworkers. But it is not your life. It's not your identity. And so I spent that year, my son happened to be going to kindergarten. He was only five or six. I had this wonderful year where I got to meet all the other moms and be a stay-at-home mom for a year, which I had never been, and really think about what was important to me and you know who I was. I wasn't leading a staff of 5,000 people. I was you know, doing laundry and taking care of a five-year-old. So it was both humbling, but I think also very um, strengthening because every role I had after that allowed me to have a little bit more distance between, you know, sort of feeling personally over-invested in something or taking things personally if they didn't go well and being able to look at them with a little bit more objectivity and know sometimes when it was time to move on too, when there's a role that just like, you know, I'm not really getting from this what I need, um, it's time to look for something else. What sort of frustrations do you face these days and how do you deal with those frustrations? You know, with, with all that experience and background that you've you've gone through. I don't know if it's frustration, but it's relevant to probably many of your listeners, which is what happens after a big career like that. So right now I'm retired again. Hopefully I'll stay retired. And now I'm in that period of I don't have enough intellectual challenge. Do I really want to go back and join a whole bunch of boards and travel all over the place again? Part of me says, no, I don't really want to do that. But at the same time, you know, you can get a little bit frustrated not having enough challenge on your plate. So what I'm wrestling with right now is what does that look like? How do I find ways to impact within my community or in other ways that are perhaps not on the world stage like it was with the Olympics, uh, not meeting with world leaders and testifying in front of a hostile Senate, but surely somewhere between wandering with my dog in the vineyard rows and something else is something in between. So I think that's an interesting challenge for people who have come up to these challenging and energizing roles is what do you do later when you still have a brain and you still have capabilities, but you also have earned the right to be perhaps a little bit more balanced in your life. And I do recommend to people, uh, particularly people who have been in their primary career, to begin to think ahead. What do you want to do next? So I remember way back in maybe 2004, I made a concerted effort to get on a board uh, because I knew that eventually I would want to do board work after I finished my primary career. And that was a smart thing to do. So I had I happened to be on CNET was my first board. And because I had a public board experience that led to other public board experiences, I had to really kind of plan that ahead because I talked to a lot of people now who've just retired who say, okay, I want to join a board, but they've never been on a not-for-profit board. They've never been on a public board. And it doesn't make them an ideal candidate. So I, I definitely recommend to people to be thinking a little bit ahead of what's the next stage in your life and career and plant some of those seeds ahead of time. And um, then you'll be better equipped to kind of transition as you go through these different career transitions. In terms of personal experiences then, Suzanne, what do you think makes a very successful entrepreneur these days? The world keeps changing, technology keeps moving. Uh, we're now moving into a new phase of uh, artificial intelligence and, and, and that will have its own challenges. When you look at the startup ecosystem, perhaps in North America, what do you think 
marks people out for success? And what should founders be thinking about to make their journeys successful? Yes. Well, one of my experiences we haven't talked about was for one year, I ran the Russell Reynolds, which is an executive search firm here in the US. I ran their San Francisco office and I primarily did board and CEO searches for startups. And so I learned, first of all, that there are phases within a young company and different skill sets that the leaders need to have. So the founder startup entrepreneur is a different person. Usually that person and their skills goes up to about a $10 million revenue company. And usually at that stage, you need to have more processes, more systems, a little bit more willingness to follow the rules. And often CEOs change at about that $10 million revenue phase. And often those CEOs, those kind of what I would call the mezzanine CEOs, are pretty good up until about 100, 150 million, maybe 200 million revenue. And then you really need a different CEO because like the real traditional CEO. So to go back to the founder entrepreneur, what we found that was, you know, made the most success was, first of all, you have to be, I think to start up, you have to be a risk taker. You have to be willing to be able to live with significant risk. And of course, you have to have a good idea. You have to be a great salesperson because initially you need money. So one of the very first things the startup founder has to do is go sell that idea and figure out where the funding is going to come from and what to do if their runway starts to run out and they've got to get later phase money. So they develop some both sales and finance skills pretty early on. And if they don't have them, they wisely bring someone on quickly who is the dog and pony show person who understands some numbers. The next thing, obviously, is you have to be a great recruiter because even if you have a very small firm and you only have eight or 10 people, they better be the right eight or 10 people. They need to be willing to work incredibly hard, ridiculous hours, and they need to be able to get along. A lot of small startups fail because people start to um, have too much infighting or the leader is not being clear enough about the roles. Everybody's trying to do the same thing and falling all over each other. or they're not communicating enough, they're all in their own little box and they're not integrating enough. So that ability to take that maybe initially small team and really get them clear on the mission and what their roles are and how to work together and also to change hats. Some days you're the finance guy, but some days you've got to go and unpack the boxes in the warehouse, whatever it is. You have to have a real willingness to um, do whatever is needed. And I think for those early founders, One of the things that often surprises them is as they start to have some employees, they realize they have accountability, not just to themselves and their idea, but suddenly they've got these employees who have families and who are relying on them to not go bankrupt overnight. And so there's tremendous pressure that I've talked to a lot of, you know, early CEOs who feel that, you know, I have to make this work because this team, this company, all the people in it rely on me to make sure that their lives don't fall apart. So it's a lot of stress and not everyone can bear up under it. So that resilience is another tremendously important quality. Just have to be resilient and just optimistic. You have to believe that the crazy thing that you're trying to do is going to work because if you have too many doubts or you're doubting yourself or you're being too cautious, that's usually when they fail. So those are some of the characteristics that I saw when I was recruiting um, that seemed to make founders you know, more successful than less. So as a final question for you, Suzanne, I mean, we, it's been a fascinating conversation. We've moved around different topics. Could you share with us what, what your view is of the next few years? I mean, are you broadly optimistic for the world of business, especially in the sort of small company range? 
Or are you concerned about certain things that are happening, maybe technologically, maybe politically? Well, you know, one of the things that's a catalyst for change, and I guess the one thing that's been a constant in my career has been change management, is you have to have some disruptive element that's making you really nervous in order to force you to do things differently. So we have a lot of those disruptive elements present right now. The birth of AI and how that will impact virtually everything in our world um, is one of those giant, giant catalysts, can be harnessed for probably amazing advances and good, can be used tremendously detrimentally if used incorrectly. Politically, you know, certain, the, the U.S. does, whether we like it or not, affect a lot of the rest of the world. We have a very fraught election coming forward, and we have all the Middle Eastern concerns going on right now. There's a lot of instability politically. So all these things are there that should be drivers of pretty significant change and opportunity. So people will see ways to make these things, harness these things that are threats to turn them into the opportunities and hopefully to harness them for good. So I'm always a glass half full person. It does look pretty bleak. But if you look back through history, there were so many times when people said, oh, my God, we're in the worst of times. You know, all of those worst of times always evolved to something different and often better. So we're probably at that stage again. I don't know that any of us are sleeping tremendously calmly at night. But if you become too complacent, you don't change. Maybe I'll finish with one of my famous speeches I gave long ago, which was called The Edge of Chaos. And the notion is in chaos theory, if things are too out of control, there is no order. But if there's too much order, things become very staid and solid and they don't evolve. And so the ideal inflection point to be on for business and for life and for the world in general is you always have to be on that cutting edge of chaos, a little bit of crazy, a little bit of stability, but just enough to keep evolving. And um, that's pretty much where we are and where we probably should always be. Fantastic. Well, look, on that note, we thank you very much for for your time. It's been a brilliant conversation for me. I've really enjoyed meeting you for the very first time. If people are inspired by what they're hearing here, and I'm sure there will be, what's the best way for people to perhaps get in touch with you? Sure. Well, I'm on LinkedIn, S-U-S-A-N-N-E, Lions. And also, my I'll give you my email. It's S-U-S-Lions at gmail.com. People can feel free to reach out. And I have more time these days. I'm happy to respond. Suzanne, it's been great, as I knew it would be. Thank you so much, really. Well, thank you for having me. Well, Shelley, that was a different, fascinating, but very well aligned conversation, aligned to the startup world, packed with interesting stories, none better, of course, than where we started the conversation, which was really around her 12-year tenure at the Olympic Committee. Oh, my goodness. That was just a fascinating listen. I mean, as she described it, you know, initially it was fairly calm and fairly fun, and then they were plunged into crisis. Um, not of their making per se, but in a way of their lack of oversight. She described herself as a reluctant leader in handling this crisis that just materialized overnight. She also had kind of an interesting phrase, you know, this wasn't a start up, but this was a complete start over. When you are thrust into a situation where suddenly everything's uh, a mess, so to speak, she talked very pragmatically about, first of all, you take accountability for the situation as a leader. You apologize if necessary for any wrongdoing, 
And then you make sure you create an environment of transparency for the staff who are going to have to help get through this crisis. And as the leader, you have to be calm. You know, you talk people off the ceiling, back down onto the floor, and then you pull out the whiteboard and you start to solve the problem. And that was a great um, framework, really, for any business that goes through a crisis period. Obviously, you can imagine in the startup world with startup founders facing crisis after crisis, not perhaps as big as the one that Suzanne faced because she was hauled up in front of the US Senate and it was a global story. So that is huge. But nevertheless, the principles still apply to startup founders. And so applying this principle of apology, transparency, being accountable, being this honest leader that wants to fix things for the future, even though it has to apologize for the past, is really important. And I think Suzanne showed great skill in doing that, and partly from her own history in her past, where she's faced similar principles before. And she said that she had to be nimble, and she needed a reliable team behind her. And actually, this point about team keeps coming up, doesn't it, Shelley? With all of our guests, you know, you need a great team around you. That's absolutely true. She talked about trust, the ability to integrate a team together. I mean, really work at it. It's not just hiring people and throwing them together in a room and saying, aha, we're a team. This is really work to get the team to operate as an entity, as a whole. It was also fun to ask her, how did you get to where you are today? Because she's had a real interesting, varied series of experiences. And I think stepping back, she summarized it beautifully by just saying, maybe there was luck, but luck is also grabbing on opportunities as they come by. So raising your hand and saying, I can do that. I will do that. Even if it's a bit of a stretch from what you've done before, but you figure it out. And of course, we all experience disappointment, don't we? And sometimes, you know, we get fired or or things don't work our way or in the startup world, you know, we, we face failure. And I was struck by her point that it's not personal and you have to distance yourself a little bit sometimes. And that was uh, similar to a point that uh, Jack Green made, our double Olympian, from episode one of this season, season three, when he said something similar. Obviously, that led to uh, very serious challenges for him in terms of his mental health. But uh, he learned to deal with that by really separating the fact that he is a human was more than just his his work. Yes. And I think Suzanne kind of hinted at similar principles. Yes, she did. She said, don't define yourself too rigidly. You are not your job. Your job may mean a ton to you and you work at it hard and you love it and it's your passion, but it's being able to to have that bit of distance and perspective. And what about the future, Shelley? You know, she, she spoke eloquently about the future and she had this phrase that you love as well, which was? It's being on the cutting edge of chaos that is going to move everything forward, that if you're mired in chaos, you can't get anywhere. But if everything is perfect and orderly, there's no change. And so it was that concept of the cutting edge of chaos. I thought that was a beautiful phrase. Next time on Startup Sensations. Make your website show the user the benefit they get rather than how clever you are. All the hard work that you're doing is of no interest to your end user. Thanks. 
Thanks for listening to Startup Sensations. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on your favorite platform so you never miss an episode. Follow us on the Startup Sensations podcast LinkedIn page and watch video highlights on our YouTube channel. Get in touch with us. Email hello at startupsensations.com. The Startup Sensations podcast. Podcast.